Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Frosino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Michelle Persino Wells, one of the attorneys here at PWW, and I'm joined today by Amber Woodland, also one of our attorneys. And we're really excited to talk today about asset protection trusts and how they can be used to preserve a nest egg for long-term care costs. So welcome, Amber. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic. A lot of people are so curious about irrevocable trusts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a huge part of our practice. So it's really good to be able to share this. You know, I always like to talk about this topic because it's something that a lot of people just aren't familiar with. You know, people know the basics, wills and trusts and that kind of thing to a great extent, but not as much about the asset protection planning. So I thought it'd be best for us to kind of start out sort of framing it up. You know, why do we talk about this? You know, how in what what context does this planning apply? So I thought it would be good just to review um, the the kind of estimated long-term care costs, you know, what we generally see. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about the Genworth survey, sure. um, you know, the costs, you know, the, the average costs that we see in the community. Sure. So cost of care can sometimes be a surprise to people. They don't really understand how much long-term care cost. And we we look annually at a Genworth study to tell us kind of geographically what is the average cost of care based on the level of care. So when we talk about long-term care, we really look at it in three different scenarios. That's in-home care, assisted living care, and skilled nursing facility care. Based on that Genworth study, It's average that on the Eastern Shore, about $55,000 per year can be spent for in-home care. And it's really important to distinguish that's not round-the-clock care. That's only about 44 hours of care per week. And a family would still be spending $55,000 annually to cover the cost of custodial in-home care. If a loved one can't stay in their home and has transitioned to a facility type setting that would either be in an assisted living facility or a traditional skilled nursing home, the costs just go up from there. Right. So based on the Genworth study, again, it's a, currently about $66,000 a year for the assisted living level of care or about $130,000 a year for a traditional nursing home. That is all statistics. In fact, we actually right. see cost of care sometimes being even higher than that. Right. I had a yeah. client not that long ago tell me they were looking at a facility in Western Sussex County. It's over $400 a day yeah. to receive care. Yeah. yeah, and so what we've learned is it doesn't take long to go through even significant savings when you're paying those kind of dollars out of pocket. And so that's why we talk about this. You know, What kind of planning strategies exist Um, to help people preserve assets. And so, again, as kind of the background, um, I think it's important for us to just briefly cover, you know, how do people typically pay for care? Um, Because, you know, oftentimes people think, oh, well, certainly my insurance is going to cover that. So, you know, what are the, the, the available payer sources? Sure. Yeah. I think a big misconception is that insurance pays for long-term care and it typically doesn't. It's very limited because it's the difference between medical care versus custodial care. And we're really talking about the cost of custodial care. It's that long-term assistance with a person's activities of daily living. And so how do you pay for care when it's needed? If it's going to cost over a hundred thousand dollars a year, if If health insurance is limited, then we look to see is there long-term care insurance. So long-term care insurance is an incredible benefit for folks who have it. But oftentimes, even when there is long-term care insurance in place, it doesn't cover 100% of the cost of care. 
But when it's there, it certainly helps offset mm -hmm. that cost. So for instance, if it's $400 a day to be in a nursing home and the long-term care insurance policy offers $150 daily benefit, that helps, but there's still a $250 daily shortfall. Right. So then what do we do? Well, the next option would be start liquidating assets and dipping into savings and privately paying for that cost. And liquidating the life insurance, surrendering the life insurance yep. policy, liquidating the IRA. I mean, they, you know, this, they make you pay, they make you come up with every dollar you can. You can put your hands on it. It's right. considered to be initially on the table for paying for long-term right. care. Right. And while we like to educate the community that that is an option to liquidate your savings and privately pay, we especially like to let them know that there is legal and ethical planning that can be done to achieve eligibility for long-term care benefits. And what we mean when we say that are governmental benefit programs through long-term care Medicaid and sometimes through the VA, which is called Veterans Pension with Aid in Attendance. Both of those two payer sources are needs-based government programs, but there's planning that can be done to achieve eligibility for those two benefit programs without becoming completely destitute first. Right. And those two benefit programs can be incredibly beneficial to help offset the cost of long-term care. Yeah, and I think it's important to to differentiate between Medicaid and Medicare. Sure. You know, you started out talking about health insurance and how health insurance benefits are limited. Well, that includes Medicare coverage right. um, for older Americans, where Medicaid, you know, so Medicare, that's an entitlement program. You're entitled to that when you turn 65, regardless of whether you're poor or if you're incredibly wealthy. Mm -hmm. Whereas Medicaid, like you said, is a need-based program. And so that's why we're talking about asset protection trust today. So let's jump into that okay. so now that we've kind of set up that background. So, you know, in our practice, we use asset protection trust as a pre-planning tool. Um, they're generally recommended for someone who wants to shelter assets um, in the event they eventually need long-term care, but it's someone that doesn't foresee needing long-term care within the next five years. Right. Now, obviously, none of us ever know that for sure. We don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> right, yep. right. So it's always going to be based on what's sort of reasonably foreseeable based on a person's current age and their current health situation. Um, it's important to understand, too, that when you do that kind of planning, um, if you don't have five years, if you do that planning, and, and we'll talk about the five-year period, but mm -hmm. if you do the planning and then three years later need long-term care, having done the planning isn't going to put you in any worse position. It just kind of takes you back to where you were prior to the planning. So it doesn't otherwise create any disadvantage. So let's jump in. Let's talk about these asset protection trusts. Okay. Um, so we have sort of a list of, of features of the trust that, that you know, we want to discuss. So why don't we, we'll go back and forth. So why don't you do the first one? Okay. If I may, let me just say, when I think about trusts, I always think about them in terms of them being a box. I think that that really helps because yes. sometimes people just foundationally don't even understand what a trust even is. It's a right. legal document. It's words on paper. But when it's signed, it creates creates a box that we can transfer assets into. This type of trust is designed to own certain assets so that after five years, those assets are completely protected if long-term care is needed in the future. Right. So the first very important feature of this type of trust is that it's irrevocable. 
So that word can be scary. People hear irrevocable and they think, oh gosh, that means that I am giving up lots of control. That means that I can't make changes to it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that because there are other provisions within the trust that still give the trust maker some flexibility. Right. But the trust itself does have to be irrevocable. And contrast that with a revocable trust, which we talk about a lot in our other podcast sessions. Mm-hmm. A revocable trust is typically designed to accomplish the goal of probate avoidance. This type of irrevocable trust is designed to protect assets from the future cost of long-term care, but this trust also avoids probate. Yes, which is a great additional benefit to it. Right. And so, like you've said, it's designed to own some of a person's assets, not all of a person's assets. And that's because you do give up some control. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to name a trustee. That trustee is going to have management authority. And so you never want to put, you know, we've had clients that come in and say, I want to put everything. I want to shelter everything I have. And so that's really not appropriate. You know, mm-hmm. we always want to make sure people have access to some cash and their savings and for a rainy day and to still enjoy their lives without having to go to their trustee for every dollar. I mean, so that's a discussion that we have with clients. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what makes sense to put in the trust? Um, one important thing to understand is you cannot put tax qualified retirement accounts, accounts like IRAs or 401ks, they can't unfortunately go in the trust without incurring some taxes, which we never want to do. Most all people put their real estate in the trust. Um, That's usually a pretty easy transfer and Folks typically don't feel a whole lot of consequence from that. And then with respect to savings investments, you know, those types of assets, you know, that's a discussion that Mm -hmm. needs to be had. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we pull the financial advisor in on that. Right. And say, okay, to the financial advisor, what is your suggestion? How much of the client's assets should move over into the irrevocable asset protection trust? And what implications does that have? Um, I think it's important to note that our clients don't need to know. Yes what assets they're going to put into this type of trust before they come in to meet with us. That's our job. Right. We're going to help them review their list of assets and determine which assets should go into this box. That's not something they have to figure out before they get to us. Yeah, that's a great point because unfortunately people do often think that they think they have to have it all figured out before they come see us. And that's our job. That's, and that's what we love to Mm -hmm. be able to help our clients with Mm -hmm. is helping them understand their options and then help them make those decisions. Absolutely. So the next on our list is the assets are protected after five years. So you've heard us already mention this five-year window and why it's so important, but that's based on a federal law that says if a person has transferred assets out of their name and tries to qualify for long-term care Medicaid within five years of making those transfers, then they could potentially be penalized. So when a client is creating this type of trust, we want them to go into it thinking that they have a foreseeable five years at a minimum before a long-term care need will arise. And why that's so important is because as long as five years have gone by, if we need to apply for Medicaid in the future, then we don't have to disclose the transfer into this trust at all to Medicaid because the question on the Medicaid application says, have you given away any assets in the last five years? If it's Mm -hmm. been more than five years, we can say, nope. 
no assets have been given away. And so that is the idea. As soon as the, those assets have been sitting in the trust for at least five years, they're completely off the table from future Medicaid eligibility. And so we use the on the table, off the table <laughs> a lot. And this is all about how do we move some of a family's assets off the table so that they're not available to be liquidated and spent down paying for long-term care. <laughs> We're very visual. Yes. Take them off the table and you're putting them in the box, box. which is the trust. <laughs> right. Right. The box. Imagine the box is sitting on the floor because yeah. it's off the table. Exactly. Um, so the, the important thing, you know, I said earlier that um, the trust maker, you know, the person creating the trust, if I'm creating the trust, you know, I get to appoint my trustee and the trustee is who is going to have management authority over the assets. But the fact that I get to appoint that person um, or people uh, is really important to allow me to make sure that I'm that you know someone's going to have that management authority that I trust and that I feel like is always going to look out for my best interest. Um, you can appoint co-trustees if that's appropriate. If you appoint one, it's important to usually name at least one or more successors. So again, that's a conversation that needs to be had. People always need to think long and hard about who they should put in those roles, you know, and always try to pick the best person person for the job. I think that's so important. It really Picking is. the it, right trustee. And that, I mean, you know, with what we mm -hmm. see and when we administer trust, you know, after people pass away or become incapacitated, that makes all the difference yep. in how smoothly it goes, how expensive it mm -hmm. ends up being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you choose someone who is disorganized or procrastinates or doesn't get along well with the other beneficiaries or what, you know, it just prolongs the process, you know, increases the chance of conflict. So really important to really be honest with yourself too mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. who's best for the job. People often feel like, oh, I need to name the oldest child. Or if I don't name, you know, so-and-so, she's her feelings are going to be hurt. And that's, that's not ever a good reason for who to choose. It's such an important job. It is. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of people put their real estate in these types mm -hmm. of trust. And I think one of the first questions maybe listeners have when they hear that is, well, what kind of control do I maintain if I put my residence into this type of trust? And one of the big features of this trust is you transfer your residence to it, but you retain the right to live there. So that means that you're still responsible for all the daily expenses related to the residence. So taxes, insurance, utilities, repairs, and maintenance. It also means that no one can ever force you or kick you out of your own house. Yes. So it's it's pretty common that someone calls our office and says, I want to deed my house to my kids. All the time. <laughs> and we say, oh, no, you don't. Because if you deed your house to your kids, you're subjecting that to their potential risks. And they could kick you out. And Michelle, I think you actually I had a client. Years ago, yeah. I had a horrible situation where dad, his wife, husband and wife, wife needed long-term care, and they had to pay a significant amount of money. And after she passed away, he actually owned three properties that he deeded to his daughter. And very long, sad story, um, short, she ended up kicking him out of his house. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was horrible. And something he obviously never, ever imagined when he transferred that house to her, but it happens. I've had other situations. I have a client right now who was living with her daughter and it just became an unbearable situation. So everybody, you know, people often think, oh, that'll never happen to my family, but neither did my clients right. think that, and it did. So, And when we have a better tool, the Asset Protection yes. Trust, and we can deed the house to the trust while 
retaining the right to reside and not exposing it to the kids' risks or not potentially being kicked out of your own house, it's sort of a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's a right you hope you don't need, Yeah, (laughs) but a really, really good one to have. Right. And and I think it's important to note that sometimes our clients create these these types of trusts and the only asset they put in is their residence. Yes. So no one listening to this needs to think, oh, well, maybe I'll put my residence, but then I have to put something else too. That's not the case. A lot of people just put their residence in, or we've got lots of clients who have rental properties yes. or vacant parcels of land. Those are also great assets to transfer over to an asset protection trust like this because it preserves the equity in that land from yes. the cost of long-term care and they're illiquid assets. And those are the hardest assets to plan with when someone needs long-term care because we don't want to have to sell them. So if they're in a trust and they've been there for five years, then they're protected and we don't have to worry about any of that. Absolutely. And so you mentioned about, you know, if you put the house in the trust, that that then doesn't expose it to the children's risks. And that's, you know, that's an important thing to understand. You know, years ago, uh, you know, people used to, it was kind of a common thing that people would put their bank accounts in their kids' names or their real estate in their kids' names. It's not enough if you just add, we get that question all the time, mm-hmm. you know, can I just add my, you know, son's name to my bank account and that'll protect it? No. Steal your money. Steal your money. Yeah. If it were only that easy, mm-hmm. but no, unless you can prove that he put his own money in the account or if you know you have a child's name on your house um, you have to prove that they contributed their own money to the purchase of that house so no adding a name doesn't do it and then so if you're going to put assets directly in your children's names children or other loved ones Mm -hmm, I should say mm -hmm. um, you know you're subject to if they get divorced if they get sued if they file bankruptcy if they become disabled themselves if they pass away mm-hmm. if they just decide to help themselves mm-hmm. because you know one of the biggest goals of this planning is to preserve a nest egg for you right um, and so you know that's why we love these trusts because it's a way to accomplish the goal of protecting assets but minimizing the risk now those trusts will say upon my death, Whatever's left over can pass to my kids or my other beneficiaries. But not until death. Right. But as long as I'm living, I know those assets are, you know, set aside on a shelf, kind of tucked away. And they're there. If I ultimately need them, you know, through the trustee that I name, Mm -hmm. I can still get to them. Mm -hmm. Which is a perfect segue to talk about ultimate distribution of these types of trusts. So just like a revocable trust or just like a will, the trust maker is in charge of directing under the terms of the trust what will happen to what's left over in this box when the trust maker dies. And so being able to control the ultimate distribution at death is really important to our clients because it allows them to say what they want to happen. So it could be equal shares to the kids. It could include grandchildren. It could include niece and nephews. It could include charities. Whatever the, the ultimate distribution wishes of the client is can be outlined in the trust. I think another important feature that we should mention is even though the trust is irrevocable, something else the trust maker retains is the ability to change those ultimate upon death beneficiaries. And so if a client creates one of these trusts and then years later decides maybe they don't want the shares to pass how they originally thought they did, then that's something that they've retained the power to change. And that's yeah. a legal technical thing called a power of appointment. It's <laughs> got to be a limited testamentary power of appointment. <laughs> yeah. But in simple terms, it just means 
the ultimate beneficiaries can be changed if they need to. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's, I think, often the people's biggest, biggest hesitancy when it comes to an irrevocable trust is that they fear, well, you know, if I say, you know, equal to my kids today, that might not be always be my wishes. And right. So the fact that they retain that right to change those, you know, death beneficiaries is really important for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Um so the assets, you know, Amber mentioned this, mm-hmm. the assets, you know, in the trust, you know, this type of trust, you know, any kind of a trust owned assets are going to avoid probate mm-hmm. upon the trust maker's death. So really important to understand that. And, you know, we've got other other podcasts that talk about probate in detail, but generally the the benefits of avoiding probate are just avoiding the time, paperwork, and expense that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, settling a trust after someone passes away is a much, much easier and faster task mm-hmm. than settling a full probate estate. Yeah, I feel like it has that lifetime protection from the cost of care, and it's got that end-of-life probate avoidance feature. It's mm-hmm. like a win-win. Right, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, tax advantages, I feel like we could get really in the weeds with <laughs> we regard to taxes we and how, let's not. yeah, let's not. <laughs> taxes, nobody likes to talk about taxes, but no. these are common questions that comes up, come up related to how, what kind of tax implications are there? I think generally speaking, when we transfer assets to an irrevocable trust, in most cases, the trust maker is still responsible for any income taxes that the assets in the trust on income that the trust produces is still taxed to the trust maker is probably a better way to say that. So the trust maker typically isn't feeling much difference from an income tax perspective in most cases. There's also a question of, okay, that's income taxes. What about gift taxes? Is there a need to file a gift tax return when we put assets in this type of trust? And the general response is no. There's not a need to file a gift tax return when we just put the assets into the box. Something else under current law that is really important is assets in these types of trusts still receive what's called a stepped-up basis at death of the trust maker. So what that means is if we put a highly appreciated piece of real estate into this trust, so let's say mom and dad bought the property back in the 70s for $50,000 and it's now worth $300,000, then at mom and dad's death, it's still going to get a stepped up basis, which is going to minimize capital gains taxes going forward. And then the final thing is related to a person's primary residence. Most people who own a primary residence know that when they sell it, even if they have a gain on it, they don't typically pay capital gains taxes on that gain either. And the trust preserves the principal residence exclusion from capital gains taxes on their tax return. So in other words, when we use this trust there really are not many negative tax consequences. Whereas if we do an outright transfer to a child or another loved one, there are some negative tax consequences to doing that. So if we looked at those side by side, it's almost like you can see very clearly. The trust is always the better answer from a tax perspective. Absolutely. And, and I think it's important to understand, I think it's, people get confused on this, is that, you know, tax laws are completely separate from Medicaid yes. eligibility rules. Yes. And these trusts are very intentionally, again, I don't want to get into legal technical weeds, uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> these trusts are very intentionally designed to be a, considered a completed gift for Medicaid 
eligibility purposes, but not for tax purposes. Right. So when these trusts are created, they generally are still going to have all the same tax consequences, tax effects, as if you just kept ownership of the assets yourself. Mm -hmm. So there shouldn't be uh, any change in taxation of the assets upon creating because under that legal technical um, rule, under those rules, it's not considered a completed gift. Right. So. Yeah, I think that's such an important distinction. Something else we often hear, or if we, when we do live events or give an opportunity for people to ask questions, everyone's always anxious to raise their hand and say, well, I heard that you can gift. <laughs> yeah. They always say, I heard you can gift $10,000 a year without that impacting anything. And we always have to stop and say, okay, first of all, it's now $15,000 a year. Right. And that's a tax rule. That's not a Medicaid rule. So we have to always keep the tax rules separate from the Medicaid rules. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, did, I think you're right. Almost every speaking engagement we do, yeah. we get that question. Yep. You can always see it coming. Yeah. So. Um, so I hope that, you know, through talking about this, that, that we've, you know, hearing these features of the trust, you know, the goal here is to help you understand that the asset protection trusts really are a better planning option than outright gifts. And that's because of the tax advantages that we just discussed. The look back period, that five year period is going to be the same. If I put my house in an asset protection trust, or if I decided to, you know, take the, the, what we don't recommend mm -hmm. <laughs> option and just put my house in my kids' names, there's still going to be a five year waiting period. So, um, you have the same consequence. And that's why we always advise our clients, why wouldn't you use the trust? It's going to offer you a lot more protection. With the trust, you're going to retain some control. If you put your house in your kids' names, you're done. It's not yours you anymore. You are completely at their mercy. Whereas in the trust, you know, again, you've been able to appoint the trustee. You retain lifetime rights to reside. You retain the right to change the death beneficiaries. The trust too, and don't want to get into this in too much detail, but the trust allows for the appointment of what's called a trust protector. Mm -hmm. um, so that if there ever were to become an issue, you know, if your trustee really started doing inappropriate things, a trust protector could be used that could even fire the trustee if that were needed. Um, and the risk avoidance. The risk avoidance is huge mm -hmm. um, just because, you know, that, that list I rattled off a few minutes ago, um, all of those things can become real uh, when you put your assets in other people's names. So I think to wrap up, why don't we just quickly review just sort of, again, the goals of doing this kind of planning. So if you're listening and you think about any of these things, this is such an important topic, I think, to talk to a professional about to see if yes. it's a good fit for you. And I think the first primary goal is to make sure that the senior, as he or she ages, is receiving the care that he or she needs in the appropriate environment, whether that's at home or whether that's in an assisted living facility or that's a skilled nursing facility. Far too often we see people put off care because they think they can't afford it or they're terrified that the only option is that they're going to have to liquidate their assets and privately pay for that care. And with proper forethought and good estate planning, during a senior's healthy years, they can do incredible planning to shelter assets from their future cost of care. And this asset protection trust is the primary tool to do that. Yes. 
Um, I think it's important to understand about these asset protection trusts too, and is that you know, be careful. <laughs> um, we have experienced a lot of other professionals who are very good and very, they're fabulous in their field, but they may not be familiar with this kind of planning. Um, we've had clients come in and talk to us and they really love the idea of the asset protection trust, but then they talk to their financial advisor or they talk to their accountant. And you know sometimes those professionals aren't as familiar um, or the financial advisor will suggest, oh, you don't need that. Just, you know, you need to purchase some long-term care insurance. So really important that you make sure all your advisors are communicating. And if that ever something like that ever happens, put those advisors in touch with one another. Um, also, you got to be careful if you're if after today, you listen you know, to this podcast, and you go sit at your computer and you Google asset protection trust, be careful there too, because there are all different kinds of trusts that are often referred to as asset protection trusts. Some of them are those like offshore kinds of trusts mm -hmm. where people, you know, try to hide money from creditors. That is not this trust. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so please make sure if you're doing your own research or you're talking to other advisors um, that you, you know, that you're getting proper information. Right. So I think just maybe wrap it up by saying the trusts are incredible tools for folks who want to shelter some of their life savings from the future cost of long-term care, it creates an incredible nest egg. And it really just can be the legacy that a family wants to leave to, yeah. to yeah. their loved ones. Yes. Because whatever's left in that box at death still passes to your loved ones. So I just, it's such, we build good foundational estate plans. And then we build on that with these types of tools for people who have these goals in yes. mind. Yes. So. Really, really good stuff. It is good. This is some of, I think, the most rewarding work that we do when we're able to help people shelter assets. And then when we see these trusts, you know, years later do their job, um, it's it's pretty awesome. It is. I love it when we've done the trust and then maybe it's the well spouse or the mm -hmm. children come mm -hmm. back to us more than five years later and we can say, good news. That planning that your mom and dad did all those years ago was really smart because now that mom needs nursing home care, these assets are completely off the table. Yeah. 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 The kids love that news. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that will do it for us for today. Amber, thank you so much thank for you. joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us today on Off the Clock. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at pwwlaw.com. Of course, you can contact us directly by calling 302 628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.